Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Tread victoriously. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Kevin Yoder. If you've been around the Ultra 4 racing or the early days of rock crawling, Kevin is a name that you'll recognize. Kevin was at uh, my first event that I put on at the Cal Rocks Put Up or Shut Up shootout in Lake Amador in 2001. He was also a first-time competitor driver at our first Vora 4x4 buggy race in Prairie City, um, this was back in probably 2002, 2003, and uh, he's got quite the uh, extensive time in competition, and he's from Northern California, and I want to say, Kevin, thank you for coming on board and uh, and talking to with us and sharing your history. Thank you, Rich. Good to join you. Excellent. So let's, uh, let's jump in with both feet, and uh, you know, where were you born and raised? So I was born actually in Sacramento, California basically spent my entire life in Northern California sands. I went to, um, moved to Reno and, uh, went to school up there, worked and uh, played off-road up there for a couple of years. And then I ended up coming back to California in 95. So, and I've been, grew up or went back to lived in Loomis where I grew up and then moved up the hill about 19 years ago up to grass between grass Valley and Auburn. So this is where I've had my residence last 19 years. Okay. And, uh, what age did you move to Reno? Oh, I think it would have been, um, 90, 20, 22, 22. I was there for just a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. 22, 20. So yeah, 22, 23 is right in there. All right. So then that means that you spent a lot of your time in the Loomis area of Sacramento. Is that where you said you yep. grew up? Okay. Yep. I, yep. I spent, um, majority of my time yeah in Loomis so growing up as a kid so that's pretty rural or it was back then it was back then you know Loomis has changed so much it was one of those places that was the other side of the tracks that you probably wouldn't brag about being from and now (laughs) that place has grown so far out of control I had to move up the hill because I couldn't afford to live there so um I mean, it's a beautiful place. My parents still live down there. Um, I, I do like Loomis. It just we wanted a little bit more property, so we moved up the hill to where it was a little more affordable. So, were you? Did you grow up near the schools that you went to, or did you have to bus in, or what was that like? Oh, then yeah. So the grammar grammar school days, I rode the bikes. Um, we rode the bike to school every day, and then went to, to Loomis Grammar School, and then on to Del Oro High School. 
to where, um, yeah, freshman, sophomore year, I walked a lot to school through the backwood or through the back pastures getting there. And then um, obviously once we could drive, I drove. So, but yeah, real close. And it was a great community, lots of fun around there. So, Well, Del Oro, if I remember right, had some pretty good football teams back in the day. Did you uh, play sports in high school? Yes. So I was, yeah, the Delaro was a powerhouse in football. We were kind of, my group, my class was 89. So we were kind of on the front end of the, the when they made their huge run and were dominant for so many years. So yeah, we had to, we won the championship and also ran track and wrestled. So I had a pretty successful sports career at Delaro. Um, I went to play football after Delaro. I went to play ball at uh, Butte College and um ended up not finishing it out because i started playing rugby and never looked at football again so oh really is why was that was it just because of it's more movement or what was the what was i think i think the rugby has appeal because it was more camaraderie than when you know in high school it's the football is the best thing ever man you have your friends and you're all you know your group of guys in there and when you get the in say there's you know 50 people on the team where you know everybody when you get to a very competitive jc and there's 125 people going for however many they're going to keep and the competition was it just it wasn't the same feeling and there are some other things that just took place that i wasn't it, it just was a different environment and then i went and um i rolled my ankle so i got sidelined and then uh while I while I was a sore ankle, I was watching rugby. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And then, like I said, I went out on the field hobbling while on a break from football and, and never came back to football. So, Interesting. Okay. And rugby was something that I liked because it's nonstop action versus, um, you know, football it has a burst of a bunch of plays. My problem with rugby is I still kept getting concussions because I couldn't unlearn the football out of it. <laughs> so um, in rugby, you don't go for the big hit, but you, you know, it's a, it's just a different game, but you know, rugby was such a good experience because there's very few things where you can compete against somebody for whatever the, you know, whatever the duration as hard as you can go ready to throw blows at any time. And then the minute the whistle blows, it's over and everybody gets along. And that was just such a de- departure from what football was. So, and especially at a college level where everybody thinks they're going to go to the pros and, and all that. So it's just the camaraderie was unbeatable. So, and we got to do a lot of, lots of good things. And we played, um, we'd go down to the, the Palo uh, sevens tournaments down in Palo Alto to where, uh, down there at Stanford, which is a prestigious rugby team and everything. So, and the, you know, the rugby teams would put you up, you know, the host teams. And so it was just, it's a great community and a lot of fun. And then the, the physical competitiveness is pretty intense too. But well, like I say, once the whistle blows, when it's over, you know, you got your drink and beer with the, the guys you just beat up against. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. I can't figure that out. Why a sport like football, you know, I played a bit in high school. I was never very good. I think I didn't get the right attitude until after high school, but coached it in the Pop Warners, you know, when Rich was young before he, you know, got into high school ball. And it always seemed like there was a lot of contention from team to team to team 
with, you know, like you said, you know, afterwards, you know, it wasn't uh, necessarily handshake. Now, when he played football up in Cedar City, it was a different story because like the eighth grade ball up there, when we moved up there, it was everybody was from the same town. There was one one town, Parowin, that was nearby that had a team but all the rest of the teams came out of Cedar City themselves. So everybody went to grade school together, and then they split and went to high school after that. So, you know, there was more camaraderie there than at any point that I can remember. Right. And, and the the other big thing is Del Arrows always had outstanding coaches, and the coaches were, you know, an extent. The, parent, the coaches were life coaches, too, at Del Arrow, you know, and they kept us out of trouble and if we did have problems things got settled in house you know <laughs> within that group and and so it's such a team sport and a family and then when you get to college it's an individual you know you're pretty much everybody's there for themselves and how good they can do and shine and because like i said everybody out there thinks they're going to the pros right so so then in those early years before high school um was it most time spent, like you said, riding your bike to school and, and out and about, or did you play sports at, you know, at that age as well? I mean, we, you know, played sports, played soccer at a young age, never, t- ne- didn't run football, didn't play football. Um, you know, grandma school ran track. Um, so didn't only played soccer and actually in baseball too, but it was just local rec stuff. Um, I did play on a, um, um, a competitive team where I got put on a bus and would go down to the Bay area, you know, when I was uh, 13, 14 or so to play with some uh, on the, in an under 18 league. So that was pretty competitive. Um, I did almost choose soccer over football. I'm glad I, I'm glad I did not do that. Um, but, uh, I can't so, yeah, see played as a sports. soccer player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, soccer is, uh, it was fun. It's fun when you're a kid, but, um, yeah, football outshines it. Yes. So, but yeah. Um, so just local sports things around Loomis and then, yeah, riding bikes. I never, I think I did a BMX race a couple times, but it just wasn't really in the cards or the timing to, to do that. And just started wrenching on stuff. And, um, well, it always had a little junky dirt bike to go ride around on and, you know, work on. So, so let's let's talk about those early years wrenching. Then um, was it was your dad, you know, into automotive at all, motorcycles or cars? So he was into um, what got me started with off roading. Is we've my parents always basically had a an off road vehicle um, back to like a nineteen seventy three Wagoneer um, that we spent tons of time in and we did lots of off-roading not necessarily hardcore wheeling but you know before i was 10 i'd probably touched almost every state on the west for going you know loading up the wagon there with my i had a younger brother two years um younger than me and my mom and dad and we would go do a lot of camping a lot of ghost towning a lot of rural um traveling on back roads and back in the day where you could you didn't, you could go through pasture to pasture across Nevada and just close the gate behind you. And that wasn't an issue. Um, so I spent a lot of time off road in that way. Um, went to some of the, you know, the famous trails just in that Wagoneer and 
there was they they would go with the club, you know, and there would be you know more capable wheel rigs also. So we'd climb out of the Wagoneer and then ride with you know the guys in the CJ the CJ fives that could go more places than the Wagoneer, and and that's kind of how I got started. We'd spend you know a week in the Mojave Desert, it goes two weeks in Nevada, Utah. So so really got involved. You know, don't think we ever. I don't think I ever stayed in a camper or a camp trailer till I was in my late twenties, maybe. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it was a tent. So, um, yeah, I, I, we, we, I learned to camp out of a tent. So, so you did, you didn't do scouting then or anything like that. Did you scouting boy scouts? Oh, I actually, we did, I did boy scouts. I did cub scouts. Then okay. we went up to boy scouts. I think I made life, went up to a life scout, the Very one good. behind one under Eagle. And then, um, high school and sports took over. So, right. That's, that's, uh, that's a pretty prevalent answer for most people is that they get to life and then high school girls, cars, something, you know, (laughs) typically it's high school and, uh, all those other things. And, uh, that's when scouting stops, but I, I get it. Um, so did you, uh, in school, what kind of classes did you, did you have an opportunity to take, um, you know, shop classes, that kind of thing? Oh yeah. So high school, um, started with, uh, I can't remember if I took it, you know, auto shop, the auto shop one, and then went through that and I, I enjoyed that. I didn't get into the welding classes till maybe like the last year or, um, yeah, I don't think I took welding or wood shop till the last year, but I liked the autom I liked the auto shop. Um so the first did the first year and then I don't remember if there was an auto shop too or I just te- you know was the teacher's assistant for the to remain in the auto shop and basically I liked it because it was a a free lab to work on stuff. So Okay. So when what was the first car that you had that you got to drive? Um well I got to drive my I got to drive the Jeeps and the Wagoneers when I don't know, very, very young, sitting on dad's lap. So, um, as far as my, when did I drive my own first car? Yeah. I was going to say, I convinced my parents that I could buy a truck when I was 14 or maybe 15 and started working on it. Um, and so, yeah, there was maybe some underage driving happening around Loomis. (laughs) That's the nice thing about being rural. (laughs) Right. So, um, no, we learned, you know, learned to wrench on cars just, um, while the auto shop gave you some of the basics. Um, my dad did have a place, we had a dirt, dirt floor barn. And so I was able to, um, figure out how to strike an arc with the arc welder and start building things. So, uh, I built the first, my first vehicle was a, a 1960 Ford that, um, pickup that didn't have an engine and then the neighbor had an old late 60s station wagon with a 390 a ford a ford fe 390 in it and a few months after that i had the station wagon stripped and that 390 in the my ford truck so on your own that's pretty good yeah um yeah i i i really like i like figuring out how to do things on your own so 
and yeah, we had it, we had, I had it going and my dad did help with something. I think I got a loan from my grandma, um, to go through the, get the engine rebuilt. And, um, so yeah, that was my first vehicle. I'd never, it, I never had great success keeping it on the road and keeping it running, but that was, that was my first car. Okay. I think we, a lot of us went through that, especially with things that we, that we built ourselves. Um, I had a 54 Volkswagen bug and I swear to God that I had that thing apart like at least once a month for a week fixing something, whether it was the tranny front end, the motor, um, rebuilt, we rebuilt the motor on the side of the highway between South San Francisco and San Francisco, um, where I could see <laughs> candlestick park. My dad oh, wow. brought me the parts and I had to replace one of the cylinders, um, on the highway. <laughs> <laughs> A tow truck was not an option. <laughs> right. I hear you. So then get through high school. Um, you went to play ball in college at Butte. Did mm -hmm. you uh, did you have a major or an idea where you wanted to take your schooling? No, I, other than construction management was in the back was always in the back of my mind to do construction management or some type of engineering. But I was not the most studious person. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a peer engineer. I always it always just had it in my mind I was going to be a construction manager. Um, I was in the right at the tail end of high school. I was a, I kind of, I had a mentor that was a project manager. So I would work with him, um, and see how things worked and then really cemented the idea that construction management was for was where I wanted to go. But then I also had such a love for, you know, the automotive side. So in college, you know, I spent, I, I was never, oh, I was, I was a full-time student and a full-time worker basically. So I always had to have the job to pay the bills and then to go to school. Um, so I did, I worked um, for, if you probably remember the old super shop stores. Yep. Um, so I worked there and then did steel fab to pay the bills. Um, but yeah, I just had it in my mind. I was going to do construction management. When I went to Nevada it was partially for the reason of going to school. And then they were going to have a construction management program but they didn't bring it online and there was only civil engineering. And then I came to a point when I was living up there that I was having a blast playing rugby for the club team up there um, in the school, but we were spending all of my girlfriend and I were at that time, we're spending all our time driving back over the hill every weekend to go to the Rubicon and Fort Ice and go <laughs> play down here. So, we ended up coming back and I did, I never finished that, that school. So, okay. And so now you're in construction now. So right now I started working in the railroad for the Southern Pacific oh. road in 95, um, union Pacific purchase Southern Pacific, not too long after I worked to, for the union Pacific railroad, um, for almost 25 years. And then, I got caught in the corporate downsizing and was released. And within a week, I was hired as a consultant to do the same exact work that I was doing as a UP employee. So the last three and a half years, I have been a working for 
an engineering firm doing construction management for the railroad at the same role I had when I was at the railroad employee, essentially. Okay, so you weren't like the train engineer or the fireman or whatever they call it. You were you were on the construction end of uh, the railroad. Um, so the I did a number of various things through the railroad. The one awesome thing about the railroad is it has such versatility, you know, and you can change jobs relatively easy to do different things. So I at the railroad I was I brought was brought in as a composite mechanic or a, basically a pipe fitter. Um, so I did a lot of welding for the railroad or did underground installation, operated low boys, operated cranes. Uh, then I got moved into the operating side and actually probably, you know, for 10, 12 years, I was the guy that coordinated all the rock used on the railroad on the West. So wow. um, the ballast, the rock underneath the tracks is called ballast. And I coordinated the loading and unloading of that for, you know, 10, 12, 10, 12 years. So we coordinated about 600,000 tons of rock material a year. So move a lot of rock with big trains. Yeah. So, so I was involved with that. So I was involved with the operating group. I've spent a lot of time on the front of the locomotive, just like a little kid. Like, I can't believe they're paying me to ride a locomotive. So, <laughs> and that, that was the fascination with the train, you know, of staying there is just, I, I love, I, you know, it's the railroad. So, yeah. <laughs> um, who doesn't want to be around trains? And I was, I'm still a little kid around them at times. So, so or, then you probably ended up at some point at, in Portola for railroad days. Have you ever done that? I have been up there. I haven't been part of the railroad days, but yeah, I've been up there and seen it and helped move equipment for it. And, various things like that so that's a pretty cool that's a pretty cool event if anybody northern california or nevada are into trains at all um they portola california has a has a uh railroad days and it's it's kind of like a county fair type situation set up but it's tied in with the uh with the railroads i would imagine that's the union pacific there isn't it that is the Union Pacific, yes. And they actually, I think they used to have, um, I mean, it's, there's a museum up there, museum, I believe it's open probably pretty much most of the year, but you could actually drive a locomotive or operate a locomotive up there. Oh, wow. Okay. So I don't, I believe that's, that's something they used to do. My dad is a huge rail fan. Um, so he's been up there. I know he's done that before. So I robbed, I robbed the train in up there. In Portola, <laughs> we were. Uh, I I used to be for a few years here in Placerville. There's a group called the Apple Hill Gang, and it's a Western theatrics game um, group. And mm-hmm. we'd go all over to different county fairs and things like that, and and to you know special days like Portola Railroad Days. They hired us to come up and do skits and that kind of stuff. But one of the things that we did was rob the train when they had. Um, I think it was the president of Union Pacific on the train. So <laughs> we we couldn't do any, you know, we shot blanks, you know, r- dressed up in authentic Western gear. We robbed the train and then uh, went on our way. But Michael Gross, the father, family ties, I think it might have been with uh, Michael J. Fox, the mm-hmm. guy who played the dad, is a big train enthusiast. And he was up there that year and 
we ended up eating lunch with him and he was on the train when we robbed it and stuff. And it's always interesting to go up and do acting work in front of professionals, you know, right. <laughs> and then have them say, Hey, you guys did a really good job. You know, you never know if they're just pulling your leg or, you know, if they mean it or not, but it was pretty cool. But I, I always get to say, at least I got to a chance to rob a train. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so then you're overseeing the construction management for them now as a contractor as a then? Consultant? Yeah. So essentially I'm a contractor who works exclusively for the, the railroad, Union Pacific Railroad and manage public projects. So where the public, a public project road authority like Caltrans has a project to build something over the UP or under the UP, then I'm the one that manages those projects, coordinates the work. Um, and I have the, that responsibility. Awesome. That's mm-hmm. got to be a lot better than actually working for the railroad. It, you know, it's um, it, it has some advantages, and and I'm a I don't know what I'm I'm basically kind of like a loyal old dog, so <laughs> it's still a little different. It still takes getting used to. I still like sometimes shake my head that I don't work for the rail, you know, directly for the railroad. And um, I know there's a lot of the the world we live in, there's not many 30, 40 or 50 year pins that give out from companies anymore. No. And I realize I realized that. And I was um I it's the railroad and I, I could never see myself leave as miserable as I was at times, I would never quit. And so they kind of made my decision for me. So um, but then I had an opportunity to come back and be involved with it. And rather than depart to go do other stuff. I still wanted to stay with that type of work and be around it. And um, so I have been, and I've been fortunate there because I'm, I'm still around it. And I went to Omaha a couple of weeks ago, got to have dinner on the heritage train nice. um, as part of my job. And um, I'm involved with a lot of cool projects around California. Um, so I'm still involved with the railroad, but yeah, it, I mean, it has advantages and disadvantages. So, right. Cool. So let's get into uh, into some of the wheeling stuff. You said that uh, you know driving the the wagoneer, um, and then you know going on family trips and stuff like that. You uh, had a Ford pickup. Yep. And then when did you get your first four wheel drive? So I had a um, the Ford pickup. I ended up getting a, a. How what led me to the Jeep? Having the Jeep is I bought a wreck nissan truck that was going to be cheap i fixed the body and then i traded it for a mustang and then the mustang was just going to be a headache and tickets or i would crash and so (laughs) and it had a stereo system in it and another high school friend had a um, his dad had a jeep they'd taken apart um five years earlier and so i ended up trading that mustang for a jeep jeep parts that was a complete jeep that needed to be put together and i ended up getting trading them across trading them for it and then i took the jeep over to the auto shop class at the high school and basically kind of put it together there for my for my project when i was a ta so i built the jeep in auto shop in high school and um which was incredible it was, you know, it was, an, it was a, well, the frame was a 79. It had a fiberglass t- Jeep tub um, that had never been mounted from the old Malott in Lincoln. Wow. And, and so I, it was, you know, basically relatively 
relatively stock parts. It had a, a, a straight six, 4.2 liter straight six, and a T18 and a 20. And <laughs> I put it together, and that's where it all started. So um, I don't think it was running very long before I, I think I maybe went a year before it t- rolled it the first time. <laughs> and then it, then it was like opening the fountain. So, so when you rolled it that first time, was it street or trail? Trail. Trail. Okay, good. I actually was, I was beside myself when I rolled it. It rolled it doing something dumb. Of course, uh, my buddy had a, um, a Baja bug that got stuck. And then I went down there to try and went up, pulled him up. And then the, one of the tires came up and he panicked, slammed on the brake, which slingshotted me over backwards. So, um, and then after that, it seemed like the rolls started. So I probably went a year without rolling it. And then after that, it just opened the floodgate. So what trail were you on when you did that? Oh, just up on the hill. Okay. Uh, you know, out of Loomis, between Loomis and Pendron. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many hours that I have up there. Um, that's where a lot of us learn to go wheel and drive. And there was rock crawling up there. There was uh, uh, an old um, old mining equipment and a flume and some areas that they stacked rocks kind of in a gully. So we were learned to cr- rock crawl in there, literally. So. Okay. And um, then the rest of that is all like dirt roads and oak trees correct. and washouts and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lake up there where you, we could see how deep we could go in and, and all that fun stuff. And then a lot of wheeling out at Folsom Lake. We used to, I don't know if you still can, I imagine if the water's low enough, but one of the big things we'd do in high school is wheel from Rattlesnake Bar all the way out to Granite Bay and then back. And it was, <laughs> whether it was at midnight or on the weekend, that's, that's what we do. So, um, being local, you, know, you have advantage of being local, you know, people everywhere. So we had keys to the gates all around the lake. So we could go in when we know it, wanted, never got worried about being locked in. So <laughs> I did that with uh, smud. I had a set of keys to the, uh, Sacramento municipal utility district, um, friend of mine worked for him and gave me a set of keys so I could get through all the gates in that uh, crystal basin area around the base of the Rubicon. Mm -hmm. That was, that was handy. (laughs) Yeah. Up on the hill, you know, in Pennant and Loomis, the railroad railroad runs through there. And so obviously we are probably trespassing on someone's property wheeling up there. And one of the landowners up there that I think leased property from the railroad came out and gave us a key so that we didn't break down his gate to go wheeling. He just says, open it, shut it behind you, lock it. So <laughs> I've literally had a real, I've had a railroad key since I was 17 years old. So awesome. So let's, let's talk about that first Jeep then. Um, you said it was a 79 frame and a, um, was that a CJ seven or a five? CJ five. CJ five. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 79 frame. Um, it had a, you know, the typical stock, back cage and then we bent the i built the cage for you know at at the school we put the cage in it i got to put the old um i think it had some norseman true tracks that were unbelievably (laughs) wobbly but um um i came out yeah they i they needed air every other day so um (laughs) 
but it, I, I had a blast at that thing. I mean, I can't imagine life was good when I was in that Jeep. So that's awesome. And then how long did you, uh, keep that with a fiberglass body? If you rolled it a few times that did you get good at patching fiberglass or, you know, um, that body held up very, very good. So, you know, that Jeep was, um, like I started when I was about 17, I think. And then I, (laughs) it held up great. Let's just say that I ended up. It wasn't too much longer before I actually started racing that Jeep out at Prairie City. Um, Prairie City used to have a lot of uh, club events out there. I can't remember. the. I know there were Sacramento Sand Champions. Um, there was a club out there that used to put on a play day, and I can't remember the name of it. And that's when I um, – and I think I drove my dad's Jeep out there around a course once when I was 13 or 14. Um, and they were out there working it. So, or covering the radio side of it, but, um, so I've been racing out there. That Jeep raced at Prairie city for years. They had the mud drags and they had, um, one of the most fun things to do at Prairie city was they had the barrel racing. I don't know if you remember that or not, where it was basically the same as horse barrel racing, but in, in vehicles. Right. And it was the, just go send it. I had a, um, I had a, a jet that I had for the carburetor that I drilled to an eighth inch hole. So it would <laughs> thing would not idle or run under like 2,500 RPM. But as soon as I'd put that jet in for the barrel racing and just, it would just stay pinned the entire time. So, <laughs> so you raced at Prairie city before the Vora race then. Awesome. Yep. So I've literally been racing at Prairie city for more than, you know, 35 years. That's pretty good. That's cool. So then, uh, with that rolled it, you said you, uh, you started modifying it. What were some of the first modifications you did? Um, I think we probably did spring over, put made a spring over, um, tweaked around with the springs to make them flex better. The, um, started beefing it up. And then I actually started tough trucking that Jeep. Um, when I moved to Reno, we took the Jeep up there and I was having fun playing in the desert and, um, we'd go to the local four wheel drive shops and, you know, looking for things to do. And they told me there was an event coming up. Um, it was too much trouble to go back over the hill to go race at Prairie city. Didn't really have the funds to go back and forth. So then they told me about a, um, a tough truck event that was going to be at the life, the livestock event center. And so that kind of started me racing that little CJ and it ended up becoming, I ended up wrecking it hard enough to where it kind of took myself out and kind of destroyed the Jeep. So, um, but I had, I want to say I won three or four tough truck events in that little CJ. Wow. That's pretty good. So you said you took yourself out. So grass Valley fair, I want to say 94, five-ish um yeah i rolled it pretty good um and spider webbed the helmet on the ground (laughs) so i had a i had a good uh fuzzy head for quite some time after that so one of those concussions you talked about yeah so and the problem was is i had had several within a short time and so it kind of it set me it set me back a little ways so 
So now jumping forward a little bit, you're, you, you know, you have a history of some concussions when you're racing, like at King of the Hammers, are you, uh, are you doing anything special for that besides like a Hans device or something? I don't go cheap on safety stuff now. So I've spent, I've spent a ton of time. I have had, you know, a handful of injuries in the off-roading world. Um, concussions being you know more the significant side of it Uh, it's one of those things where i may be cheap on the rest of the vehicle but i'm not going to cheap out on safety gear so i've i've always kind of been on the forefront or tried to be on the forefront of what's the best equipment knowing that the only way that i'm going to be able to keep doing it is to kind of protect myself there so um i've always done my homework i've never raced um even back on the first koh i have you know, I did have a an R3 then, you know, head and neck restraint and the very first KOH. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So I've, I've never raced a KOH without a head and neck restraint. Um, and I have been in some significant crashes, as some of you guys probably know. I mean, it wrecked at 95 miles an hour at Prairie City. Went for a 200-yard tumble and broke the head and neck restraint in that wreck. But was I shooken up? Did I you know, rattled. Yep. Did I take some time off? Yep. But I w- literally walked away from it. So that's amazing granted. I, that you I was sweat. I was, I looked a little drunk and swaying when I walked away <laughs> and Bert and bird had to help me from keeping walking on the track when I climbed out of the vehicle. But nonetheless, I'm a big believer in the safety stuff. Um, I had a back injury in a suspension seat and I've never raced in a suspension seat again. I've used a tub seat. Yes, they're expensive, but I'm just a big believer in, you know, looking into things like that and protect. I mean, when you're out there racing, there's it's it's just an insane feeling, um, and so I want to protect my ability to do that in the future. So, and what kind of tub seat are you using? OMP okay. is what I use. So you're that's a uh, carbon fiber type seat. No, it's fiberglass. Fiberglass. Um, okay. Yeah, carbon fiber. The carb. Yeah, I don't think there's a. I don't know if there's a. Carbon fiber is just lighter and more money. So right. Yeah. Well, that's that's cool. And then you've that. Of course, that has a padded um, cover that goes that you actually sit within or between you and the fiberglass. Correct. Yep. Yes. Okay. So. And there is a difference. It's not like the, I know people say the suspension seats are, can protect your back, but there's just, that's, that's wrong. So <laughs> there's, there's a number of, um, I don't see, I don't know anybody that's switched from a suspension seat to a tub seat and gone back to a suspension seat in a race vehicle. Right. Are suspension seats great on the trail? Oh yeah, absolutely. Are they more comfortable? Absolutely. Are they going to compress your back? Yep. In a big hit. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, that there's there's a couple of schools of thought and it's I mean it I'm I'm not a safety expert by any means. I know that when um I I never I had drivers come to me that got hurt at rock crawling events and in suspension seats or in solid seats and said you need to outlaw the solid seats, especially like the aluminum ones. And I'm like I can't do that. And they were like, why? And I said, well, because if I require somebody to use one thing 
and they get hurt in that one thing and they wanted to use something else, I can become liable at that point. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. I always said that, you know, they needed to be a high, you know, it's always the, the seat has to be a high standard of some type, you know. So, you know, just as important as what the seat to use is how it's mounted and understanding the application. Um, while a tub seat feels rigid, they are they have built in give to them. They have a life to them. Um, you know, just like seatbelts, if you take a big hit with the seatbelt, they're made to stretch. Um, you know, they're just, they're going, not all seatbelts, but good seatbelts, you take a big impact. You need, you're done. Same thing with the helmet. I've, I have, um, crashed enough on dirt bikes and vehicles to actually be able to witness and feel like the foam that has been crushed inside the head, you know, um, well, if you've, if you spidered a helmet, you know, you probably did some damage to the interior of that helmet as well. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, correct. Yeah. So yep. then um, rock crawling, when you came out to rock, started rock crawling, your first event um, was the Las Cruces event, which was Bob Hazel, I believe. Yeah. So the first rock crawling event, um, you, you know, at a big competitive level was, was uh, yes, the Bob Hazel's event in Las Cruces. Okay. I think and that I believe, was a BFG event. I think it's yes, that was a that was a BFG event. You're correct. Okay, and uh, how did you guys do down there? Who was your spotter? Joel Swanson um, was a longtime buddy. We had a we had a it was just an unbelievable experience. So yeah, Joel Swanson was my spotter. We went down there with um, uh, just expectations to go have a fun. So we borrowed borrowed my um in-laws truck loaded five of us in a in it with a shell on the back and then headed drove out there um it, the event was awesome we wheeled i can't remember all the trails down there but it was in las cruces we had a it was a two-day event or you there was two days and then a um what they called the dirty dozen on the last day you right. know for the final so basically i think they maybe started with 50 60 and whittled it down to either 12 or 13 people. And we went into it. We, we actually went into the, the last day or in the dirty dozen, I think in second or third place. Um, and the, I had never driven a lot of those ledges before, you know, Northern California, we don't really have those ledges. It's all, you know, low gear rock crawling. Um, a lot of the stuff back there, it wasn't, you know, launching up stuff, but they were a little bit different terrain than what we were used to. So, um, but it was, it was a great event. I actually ended up breaking, um, the second day and then, but we fixed it in the parking lot and we were still in good enough position. I think we went into the finals second or third place during the finals. I flipped it and I think we got sixth overall. So, not bad. It's very good. No, it was great. It was, it was just, uh, you know, at that time, you know, you're not in awe of everybody that's there, but it's all the guys that you saw in the magazines, you know, and you're like, right. oh, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm door to door with these guys, you know, like, this is cool. Hey, I got to talk to so-and-so and not starstruck, but it, it was just cool. Like being around that group, realizing that you're competing against these people, um, you know, the, 
it, it was just, it's a great experience. So. And then after that, did you, did you do the next one he did, which was Johnson Valley, Johnson Valley. Yep. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I was hooked on it. I don't think I have not missed an off-road competition since that first 98 year. So I have not missed a competition since that year. I've competed at least, at least once every year, you know, in whatever you want to call the premier group. So whether it was Bora off-road racing or your, your Cal rocks events or, um, you rock or King of the hammers or all the others, uh, XRRA. So I have not missed it. I have not missed a competition a year of competition since that first 98. Wow. So, that's pretty good. So, um, I've always been hooked from it. So, um, I haven't always been able to go to, obviously I haven't done every event and every series and right. competed at the level that it'd be awesome to be able to do. But yeah. So to carry on what you're asking is, so I competed in Las Cruces and then every year after that with it, I think it turned to called pro rock and I competed then for a while. Um, but I, I've been involved with it ever since. So excellent. And I know you ran with Cal Rocks a lot because I, I remember you being up at Donner a number of times with us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I um, I ended up getting uh, ended up competing with uh, Jeff Mello, as you know, mm-hmm. and being on being on his team, which was another awesome experience. And you know, I learned a lot from Jeff as far as. Um, being a being a competitor and actually the, the level that Jeff puts in it on competition day is pretty good and it's you know I think I would I know for a fact if I would have had his mentality and some of the earlier things I would have finished better because he really focuses on things he pays attention to detail um, so I did learn learn from that um, I think I had the mentality so often that I probably still carry over a little bit of being prepared but also there's a limit on okay i'm i'm going to show up and i'm going to do what i can do so it's, it's kind of like running what you brung is i take that a little extreme sometimes so <laughs> have you done this all on your your own dime or have you had marketing partners that have helped you along the way or so sponsors the, as with, many drivers call it well with the early rock crawling stuff um I was associated with back to the super shop days when I worked okay. at super shops. Um, I got tied in with BFG and the rough riders. So way, way back in, in the, you know, 91, 92, I got tied in with the rough riders and BFG through super shops. So I was getting, I ended up getting, um, I think the first Moab edition tires, which were supposed to be a sticky tire before they had stickies. Um, and I raced, put those on the CJ and then I ended up driving, getting to go out and drive with the Rough Riders out in the desert when I lived in Nevada. So I got tied in with BFG then. And so I was able to get tires for hooked up with BFG and getting tires for the tough truck events and stuff like that. And BFG, as you probably remember, was had unbelievable contingencies. And then they carried that into the rock crawling days. Yes. And so... Um, when I was with Jeff Mello and he was a BFG guy, like BFG, they, they, they put it out there. Like they paid good for, if you ran BFGs for winning. 
And so I carried that BFG stuff up to um, basically KOH. When KOH started, I ended up being meeting Mike Green with Pitbull. Um, and then I've been on Pitbull ever since. So Mike Green, Pitbull, El Diablo. <laughs> yes. So um, as far as the sponsorship, so without Pitbull, I would not have been able to race all the racing I've done in the last, so since um, – uh, what was the first KOH? 07? 08? Yep. So I've been with Pitbull since then. Um, he's He's been my biggest supporter. I've had a number of, been fortunate to be part of a, a few other companies out there like Reed Racing that have provided me support. And Jamar, or Jamar, um, yep. brakes. And, you know, I have a set of trophy truck brakes. So Don, I met Don at SEMA you know, 10 plus years ago. And so he supported me with equipment there. Um, and so I haven't been a full sponsor, but I've got enough industry support to keep me in the game is the best way to say it. Okay. Um, at one time when I was, when we was when we were racing KOH and racing Bora and doing the rock racing and everything we could, there was a time where, I, there was an opportunity for more sponsorship at, you know, basically a full-time level, but I could not consciously make that jump because I had a full-time job that worked 50, 60 hours a week at the railroad. So it's, you know, the railroad wouldn't let me take any more days off than I was already taking off to go to do these events. And it's be careful what you wish for with sponsorships, because you may be given an opportunity to do it full-time, but that's a decision you have to realize impacts you it's not just racing you're impacting it's not covering your racing it's you have to make that switch to that it's almost it's a career move and give up what you're doing your day job true and i was i was not willing to do that um the the fight the what the racing did for me is it led to a lot of other avenues of income to support the racing so when you're out there and you're making a name for yourself people want what you have being that I fabricate everything myself, you know, I've built a number of things for other racers out there. And so that was kind of, while it wasn't, I wasn't fully sponsored, racing led to other income is the best way to say it. So if you're in the industry, um, it's great, but I was, I'm my, my day job isn't in the industry, which it's good and bad, right? So if you're in the industry, it could lead to more, more sponsorship. But if you're outside the industry, it's, it's difficult. And so my day job has always been outside of the off-road industry with the exception of, you know, the small things that I have been paid to do, fabricate and stuff like that. So is there a certain product that you have that, that people purchase, um, that you're fabricating or is it just doing fab work for people? Um, I've done a lot of one-off stuff for people, machining okay. adapters. Um, I've fabricated a, a handful or a, a number of, um, housings from scratch. So I love fabricating. I, I don't like repairing, <laughs> okay. um, the housings on my, the, my ultra four car, um, the rear uses a super 14 and I have the original, t I had no less than 80 hours into building the original housing in that. And I'll do it. I'll, I'll do another one. I like, I like doing that. Um, what I don't like is 
building a new one after I trashed it. So, <laughs> and unfortunately, that 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 was like when I've taken the time to build something right, it's it's lasted. So, um, but yeah, so I've done a number of things. I've helped a few. Uh, there's a there's a number of people out there of the top guys that I've helped give them some behind the scenes help too with building things for them. So, cool, excellent. So then let's talk about those early days and the rock crawling, um, you know, did and the racing XRA and that kind of stuff. Was it, uh, what was the camaraderie like out there? That was awesome. You go to, you go to see people. Um, like I said, the racing, the racing's there. Um, and again, it's similar to rugby where you can just send it in a lot of that stuff wasn't door to door, but the, you know, you're not sharing information with everybody ahead of the race and you see a line, you're not going to give it up. Um, you know, that information and it's like rock crawling. You see a line. The only time you'd ever see a line is if you'd hint somebody, Hey, what do you think about that? And you just want to see if they'll do it just to see, so you know, because they're ahead of you or you, or <laughs> again, other tricks for mellow is there's, pit, there's this thing called pit racing and, you get in people's heads and I enjoyed that part of the competition too, but the camaraderie is great. Um, you know, not everybody's going to get along. People are going to, um, complain all that, but I, you know, it, it's such a, like the core of off-road is a big family and that, that part is cool. Um, you know, it's flattering when people come up and that you, they remember you and maybe, oh, I used to compete against you in the Cal Rocks days or, you know, we were in, I met you at, uh, you know, um, in Colorado at one of those old events, stuff like that. So the camaraderie is awesome. I mean, I've made some lifelong friends out of it. So. Do you still wheel four dice in the Rubicon? I do. I got out of it. I not. I didn't get out of it. I was just didn't have didn't make the opportunity to go like I should have. I put racing and life ahead of rec wheeling a little too much for a while, and now I look forward to those rec trips as much as I do the racing. Excellent. So, um, yeah, we've at my we my daughter, my older daughter's twenty one, and after one of the KOH events, she was absolutely insatiable about getting, or like she had to have a Jeep, wouldn't stop thinking about a Jeep until we got it. And we ended up getting a, getting a, um, a salvage JK. And then we um, got a salvage JK and Trevor from WFO sold us some takeoff Rubicon axles. And he's, he's provided some tremendous support to us all me also over the years. And, um, so we built my daughter a Jeep and now she, it's, it's one of the, the highlights of the years to go on my daughter's birthday trip to the Rubicon. So, um, we've started making more annual trips again, just like we did when we were young. Um, you know, when there, there was a year, I think I went uh, into the Rubicon. I probably went 20, 25 times in one year up to the Rubicon. So those days aren't available you know those are not going to be repeated again um while you have to work but yeah the 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 rec wheeling is something that um we're definitely making an effort to do more of 
So, and do you, do you, is it just like you and your daughter or do you got, you know, is Joel still into it? And some of the other guys you, you used to so, hang with? I still see a lot of those guys. Um, I think Joel, Joel's doing the side by side thing. They bought property up in Nevada. So they go rip town to town, um, with those, uh, with the side by sides. Um, he's still around a lot of the, like Daniel Gutenberg and those guys, uh, yeah, we're still wheeling. So, um, still willing with a lot of the same people we did from high school. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, you're just racing KOH now or, or did, well, you raced at Prairie city the other day, did you, or were you just, were no, you just I, I hanging, <laughs> hanging out? Yeah. Um, I was out hanging out. So, um, I raced KOH. We've raced, uh, we raced John Goodby's NorCal races here periodically, um, I want to go do another desert race. Um, I really love the desert racing, even though it's kind of in the rock crawler. Um, it's still, it's, it's fun. The thing I like about desert racing is point to point. Um, I love KOH. I, I love KOH, but I still like, I'm not a fan of laps. I like to go point to point. So laps make it easier for teams to pit and all that. But I think the idea of, um, the idea of point to point is getting from A to B and that's the mission. So, um, and a lot of the desert racing, like Vegas to Reno, we've done that before. Um, you know, it's the point to point that it feels like you're accomplishing getting from point A to point B. Right. So, yeah, when I owned Vora, my goal was to have the laps as absolutely as long as possible. Um, but it was, I could never get, you know, like a 250 mile lap, you know, so Correct. I'd always have to do at least two or three laps to get that. But, mm -hmm. you know, you're still out in the Nevada desert. There wasn't a whole lot of pit opportunities. No. And, and, and those, the land use and what it takes and the permitting and the coordination is tremendous to do a point to point right. and get that. So, you know, while I like point to point, the lap races have so many advantages too, especially for the, your, the guys that you've begged to go out there and help you because it <laughs> makes it a lot easier for them. Um, and so, yeah, the, I'll, I'll live with either. I, I you know, I, it, I think a lot of racers feel the same way I do. You put on a helmet, whether you're in the ultra four car doing KOH or you do a, a race at Prairie city, or you put a helmet on a go-kart track. A lot of times it feels the same. Like you're competing against somebody and you're, whatever you're driving, you're driving as hard as you can, the most you can get out of it. So it's just that, um, it's a feeling that's hard to describe. <laughs> I always, I always try to remind the drivers that, you know, not being on the competitive side myself. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very competitive. That's why I'm not, I've not competed in events. Mm-hmm. And my wife can attest to why I shouldn't, but we, uh, <laughs> one, you know, being a promoter, you know, you talk to all the drivers and everything. And one of the things that we, we notice, especially, um, not so much with the rock crawling, but with the racing is that it seemed like as soon as you drop the visor down, that it's like a fog comes over, over your brain and 
it becomes more mechanical. You know, the body's just doing what the body's doing and the brains may not be all involved in it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I always tell everybody, you know, you lose 50% of your IQ as soon as you close that visor. Yep. <laughs> because you become like, everybody thinks they become Superman and, uh, you know, saw it out in the desert with, with Vora a lot where guys would just be, you know, I know they pre-ran, they, they came through an area that, you know, maybe the top speed was just 45 miles an hour and mm-hmm. they would try to come through it. 65 or 70. Right. You know, and then all of a sudden it'd be a big cloud of dust and I'd be untangling cars. Nope. You're, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Some of the, um, the mentality, like the, the emotions you go through before a race and especially when you're door to door with somebody, you know, the, the races, John's races and, you know, like the stampedes and stuff, the stuff at Prairie city where you're door to door there's so many times when you're lining up and you're getting ready and you're like, Oh, this is ridiculous. I can't afford this. I'm, you know, these cars are fast and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, what am I doing? What am I doing all the way up until that flag drops and then everything goes out the window and it's just pure fun. Like it just, you don't think about any of that when you're going, all you're thinking about is, can I outbreak him to the corner? Can I, you know, can I get around him? who's coming up on me at a hundred miles an hour because I can't do the same speed through here that some of the other guys can do, you know, it's, but the, but like your nervous butterflies, whatever, it's just that, that feeling that you can't describe, but then the minute that flag goes, it's gone. And it's just, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is awesome. So I I get a chance being that I'm not in a car that I get a, a chance to see everyone's significant others. So mm-hmm. I'm watching girlfriends and wives or mothers. It's not so much the dads, but the mothers and watching the emotions that they're going through on the sideline while the racers are out there, you know, rubbing paint, um, bouncing off each other's tires, getting locked up, whatever is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I'm surprised anybody is still married after a race having their significant other watch them. Right. You know, it's just, it used to be like in Prairie City when, when we raced Vora there, you know, you'd come up the big stadium jump in front of the, the grandstands there in the scoring tower. And then you could either, you either had to make that sharp U-turn pin, a hairpin there or mm-hmm. you would go off into the hot pit area and then have to come back out. But do right. you remember all the wrecks that used to happen right there? Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. It, I mean, every, every weekend, one of the classes, especially it always be one of the buggy classes, the four wheel drives. I remember you guys, it looked like a demolition derby. I mean, somebody would slow down and guys would just drive over each other. Right. You know, yeah, the, <laughs> <laughs> the one the one thing about race cars and ultra fours and four wheel drives in general is it doesn't take any talent to go fast with four wheel drive. It takes talent to deal with what you're what you come up to at speed. But it, it like um and I know you remember the Voras when we had the land rush starts. Oh yeah. <laughs> so having cars ten, twelve, fifteen wide at a start. Um <laughs> I can't imagine if you did that now with Ultra Four. Um, you, everybody would be wrecked except for the car that cleared. So, um, 
but it, those the, that intensity again like it's hard to describe and um you know when i talk about like when you're lined up in your stage and you get nervous when you do the land rush starts you can't see anybody else all you're looking out there so you don't think about those things all you're doing is okay just wait for him to try to time it try to time it go so um but yeah there's the I, I get what you're saying about the wives and everything. So my family, unfortunately, has had to watch a few ugly crashes with me. Um, and I <laughs> I can't thank them enough for giving me the support. So um, and it's hard. It's even, you know, the it's I can't I couldn't watch it. I'll put it that way. So. So if your daughter came to you and said, Dad, I want to. uh I want to get into the ultra four car and race at Prairie city. Are you saying yes or no? Uh, if she wants to do it. I mean, she rides, she does uh horses and rodeo type things. So okay. <laughs> pick your poison. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> at least in a you car know. you're belted in and a helmet and all the safety gear on a horse, you know, you might yeah, have a exactly. helmet and some leathers on, but, uh, We've, we've had, we've had injuries on the horses too. So pick your poison. Um, I think that the key is to, to know your limits. So even though, even though now and then you get nutty in the car, um, I still think I try to keep it. Um, like I've never, I've never been the driver that closes their eyes and just sends it. Um, I will send it with my eyes open. I will take chances but I'm not someone that's going to rely purely rely on fate or luck. Um, I don't believe in luck because I think I don't like the idea that something else that that I, I don't like the idea of, I don't have control over my outcome. So, um, but while there's fortune and misfortune, I don't like to think of it as luck. So I've never been someone that just closes their eyes and just, you know, I've always, I'm going to put it to the floor. I'm going to turn my wheel. I'm going to go for that one little six inch gap ledge. And I'm, that's where I'm I'm aiming for my tire. Um, I know a lot of people say I just close my eyes and send it across the rocks, but I actually do like, whether I'm falsely believing I have control over it. (laughs) There is a tactic that I am going across the rocks with. It doesn't look like it. And I'll, you know, and I'm, maybe I'm living my own life, but I'm still going to believe that I'm driving. <laughs> I have somewhat control. So, <laughs> so like Chris Durham, um, there's always a, there's always that uh, clip of him up at Donner Ski Ranch trying to get up that, I don't know, it's like a ten foot wall or something like that with a crack line in it, and mm-hmm. he's just bouncing off the rev li- rev limiter. And the car is just flipped. I mean, it's not flipping, but it's just bouncing all over the place. And then all of a sudden, boom, he pops up on top. Mm-hmm. I think that was probably one of the original um, rock bouncer moments. Oh, absolutely. And then when he went up, the first race that we, or the first rock crawl that we did down in Lucerne Valley at the race, at the the gun the shooting range. It was the lion's pride park. He mm-hmm. had a run up that Canyon that, uh, Walker goes, all right, I've got to beat Chris's time up that. 
And I'm like, <laughs> why do you have to beat his time? And he goes, because he went so fast, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, huh. here we go. It becomes Everybody became a racer that day instead of a rock crawler. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah. it was, it's pretty crazy. Chris, Chris was amazing to watch. So he was, he's another guy that you're not going to, I'm not going to believe for a second. He just closed his eyes either. Like he had reasons for what he was doing. He had such good throttle control. Um, he, he, he was a talented driver. So I, I got to wheel with him um, a couple times in Johnson Valley, you know, outside of a competition. Well, actually, we were there for a competition, but a handful of guys that really loved the wheel would go out and wheel at night outside of the competition in the competition vehicles. Right. So um, just to get the trail wheeling in. And he drove like that on the trail. Like he'd give it a try or two and then he'd square up and go. So And light the fuse. Yep. <laughs> a lot of it was that his vehicle, that's how his vehicle worked. So he's not, you know, it was a wide, long and stable low and stable so he's not going to be able to crawl over things because he's going to hang up and he had to launch it over things but he had skill so yeah he, he i don't know he'd be sawing that wheel back and forth and it was like okay i just saw that you know it was almost like he would i just started to feel that traction so he'd go back at it and just a little bit different throttle and then boom he'd be up and uh, mm-hmm. you'd be wondering like looking at it going does he even realize what he's doing but he did you know it was successful with it yeah absolutely so then um racing koh the goal of that race of course is not only just to finish but to uh to survive the desert because most rock crawling cars at least in the very early days they didn't die on the rock trails they died out in the desert. Is that correct? I think, yeah, I think, um, I think that's probably true. So, so what did you do to overcome those kind of heating issues? Cause it, that all came down to heat, whether it was in the tranny, the axles or the, the engine itself. Um, I don't think I, I never really ha- experienced those, those issues. Um, the drive, tr- I've always tried to overbuild my vehicles. So, um, when I, when the first vehicle I raced, um, at KOH was a few months removed from actually one of their Cal Rocks events. Um, and I, I, I didn't personally have those issues. Um, the issue I had the first KOH was on the rocks, hitting a rock hard enough to blow the hydraulic line was the, my first DNF at KOH. That was my demise is just, a um, what worked for rock crawling going slow doesn't work for going fast against things. Right. And I, I, I don't think that anybody has, I mean, to build a vehicle to survive all that, it's going to be, you know, you're going to build something that's so massive and so heavy, it may not be a winning vehicle. So I think that what everybody is discovering is that there is at least the top, top teams know there's substantial maintenance between races. Because if you overbuilt your car so much, it would not, it's not built to win. Um, there is some of that that you have to have a car that will survive. But I think the competition is so fierce now that you cannot overbuild your car. I think that's why that so many people are going to exotic materials 
um, to get every advantage because if one team does it, everybody has to. Um, everybody's looking for that extra 5% to be ahead of the game. Who's willing to do that? So back in the early days, I do think that there were a lot of cars that were underbuilt. Um, I didn't necessarily experience those types of failures as far as fabrication, um, things that broke. So I was fortunate there. And I've always been big on cooling, like oversized <laughs> coolers. I've always had oversized coolers. so It makes sense. Mm-hmm. When I built the um, when I built the car that I first competed in KOH with, I wanted an athletic buggy. So it was before kind of KOH existed, but I knew I wanted something more athletic than just a rock crawler. So I kind of built it knowing that's where we wanted, that's where I wanted to go with it, and plus that's when the XRA rock races were coming in. I had hoped to go do those. So I, when I put the last buggy together, I wanted to do everything car, and it turned out to be pretty good. So. Excellent. So what's, uh, what's in the future for, uh, Kevin Yoder? I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. Um, I'm not going to run, you know, 10 races a year. My thoughts are that KOH is not even a question. It's just, I'm going. So (laughs) I'm racing (laughs) KOH as long as they let me, um, you know, I've been, I have in the past, I have started doubting if it's the right thing to do and, um, and unfortunately some very big people in the industry stepped up and said, you got to run this. What are you doing? And they helped me out to get me back to KOH. So, um, you know, those people I'm ever grateful for and the support of, you know, Jeff Mello and Trevor from WFO and in Dave Cole is, you know, they've always been super strong supporters in what I do. And of course my family. So, my plan for the rest of the year is to get out and go race um, maybe a Vora race or one of John's NorCal's. And then um, I, I want to make the, I want to give um, a bigger effort to KOH. Um, again, I'm guilty of just not being satisfied with getting to the race, but getting to the race is always just the first, the first hurdle I have to go through. I think there's more people like me that are just challenged to get to the race than there are the top teams that, um, you know, are really all in working out the minute details on what their best chance is to win. I think, um, I think there's more people like me than more people like, you know, they're just going, doing every little thing they can to win. They're, they're, they're challenged getting there just like me. So what I, my plan is to start prepping for KOH now to get the car out there, to get it down there ahead of KOH, to go, um, you know, I have a new, I had new shocks a few years ago. Um, Wayne from Alltech helped me tune them. And then they came back and the car sat and I ended up getting, um, air in the air in the air on the oil side. And that's what kind of caused me an issue this year. Um, so my front shocks were basically vacuum locked down. So my plan is to be as prepared as I can, like I've never been before for KOH. So excellent. That's my plan. That's a good plan. Um, my buggy is, it is a buggy. It's still more of a buggy than a race car. It's just a rock buggy. I try to drive fast. Um, 
I do. It has stayed uh, um, more like a buggy than a race car for the reason that it still goes out on the trails now and then. Um, when my daughter was uh, learning to do the off-road, we put her and her boyfriend in it So and went to the Rubicon on it because I figured that's the safest place you could be. If you're in that car, you can drive anywhere you want and you can't get hurt. Right. <laughs> so um, we do take the buggy on the trail now and then. It's um, So I'm not saying the car is not going to go out before KOH, but um, I don't. I want to get another race, a race or two in, but um, my main focus is just kind of putting myself in position to do better at KOH next year. Awesome. So. Now I, I have, you know, Brian Butcher who used to race Vora <clears throat> when he was a kid, <laughs> him and, and his um, wife, Laura are doing a really good job with, uh, with Vora. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a good op- opportunity to get out there and do longer laps than mm-hmm. say Prairie city. So I think that's a, that's a good test for a vehicle. Um, of course oh, yeah. it's not, you know, you know what, what it's going to do in the rocks. So. Yeah. Bora, Bora means a lot to me. I mean, I had, I had such a great time, such a great experience, um, you know, going way back and racing through it. And when you had it and, um, and I do know BJ and I've been wanting to get out there to go race one of them. So I, I, I don't exact. I hope, and I haven't missed them all. Um, but I do. I had it on my mind that both uh, a couple of us want to take the our rock buggies out and go race them again. So, awesome. Well, that's good to hear. So I think we've touched on everything. Is there anything that uh, you can think of that we haven't touched on? Um, no, I think we're. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. So okay. Well, awesome. Well, Kevin, I want to say thank you for. Uh, jumping on board and making the time to, uh, in your busy life to, you know, sit down and talk for the hour and a half, two hours that we've been talking and, Mm -hmm. uh, sharing your history with us and, you know, for sharing your history with me coming out to our events. I've, I've really appreciated that. And, uh, you know, as I wind down my rock crawling career as a promoter, it's, uh, I get to look back on all those people that I that I got to meet and uh, that I I figure I can still call friends, and uh, uh, you're one of those. So I appreciate it. Appreciate that, Rich. Thank you. All right. Well, you take care today and uh, have fun with the family. All right. Thanks, man. Have all a right. good one. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Big Rich. Please let your friends know about this podcast. Let us know what you think of Conversations with Big Rich. Please forward ideas to me, contacts of those that I should attempt to interview, leave a rating on any of the services you found us on. We look forward to your comments and ideas. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and grab all the gusto you can.